please be advised that this episode contains discussion of police brutality, domestic violence, child abuse, and racial slurs, and is therefore meant for mature audiences. We got carrots out here this week, onions, potatoes, and apples, so perfect for perfect fall food. We got our extra stuff, they may need that. This is some of the literature that we put in here. We got fresh bread. People are baking fresh bread for us. Come get a bag of food. This is audio from an Instagram live of the West Philadelphia-based group Food Not Bomb Solidarity. I'm live right now. We got bags and bags, so come out, tell your friends every Friday at 5. Every Friday at 5 p.m. on a street corner in West Philadelphia, Food Not Bomb Solidarity sets up a table with pre-packed bags of food and other necessities to distribute to anyone in the community in need. The group is all volunteer and completely diverse in age, gender, sexual orientation, race, and belief. Based on their social media posts, Food Not Bomb Solidarity also uses their platform, their voices, and resources to fight gentrification, police brutality, and to advocate for criminal justice reform, workers' rights, environmental justice, racial justice, and more. The reason I'm sharing this quick bio on Food Not Bomb Solidarity is in order to provide context for the group's public statement to its 2,600 followers on August 19th, 2021. Food Not Bomb Solidarity withdraws our endorsement of MOVE. This action is taken in the absence of any sincere attempts by current MOVE members to address and take accountability for the horrors that went on for decades in their organization. It is taken in support of MOVE survivors, some of whom have courageously jeopardized their safety to make public alarming accounts of abuse, intimidation, and bigotry. Providing support to disadvantaged communities and political actions is central to our mission. In this case, our members feel lied to and used. FNBS believes in restorative justice and looks forward to the day that those responsible for the abuses within MOVE begin the process of restorative justice by coming forward to admit their wrongs and knowledge of what was happening, apologizing and taking transparent and decisive action to assure the abuses are stopped. After weeks of silence from the West Philadelphia activist community and MOVE supporters in particular, After the podcast launched in July 2021, this was a wonderful statement of support, and the MOVE members who have alleged abuse on our podcast felt very supported by Food Not Bombs, especially because of the group's years-long public support of both MOVE and Mumia Abu-Jamal, which you now can understand is one and the same. The podcast shared Food Not Bombs Solidarity's statement on our social media accounts and we began following them on their social media accounts, which is where I took notice of the comments, with one in particular catching my eye. It was just three words, told you so, by somebody named Timothy Hayes, who I don't know or even recognize in relation to move. And then someone replies to him, Timothy, not helpful on many levels. And this person commenting is someone I am familiar with because they have been a longtime MOVE supporter who has regularly brought MOVE members into their sociology classrooms to speak to their undergraduate students. Hmm, 
I am now very curious, but that doesn't last for too long because Timothy Hayes replies to her with this. I have been saying this for years and been an advocate for ex-move children for decades and no one listened. In fact, I was vilified. I lived across the street from move for years and used to feed and sometimes shelter kids and women from that house. I think it's a blessing that this is out there, but we tried a long time ago. I set out to find Timothy Hayes. This is episode three, Vince and the Black Panther. For this episode, I'm taking you to a twin Victorian home in the Germantown area of Philadelphia. Standing in the narrow living and dining room, I see a full drum set, a piano, a small dining table, a TV area, a fireplace, and a whole wall of books. Our interview subject is a voracious reader and lover of history. He himself is a living piece of U.S. history. So we are here with not just audio equipment, but also two cameras. Sure. Rolling on B cam, rolling on A cam, sound sync. My name's Tim Hayes. I hate the name Timothy. Okay, I don't know what mama was thinking. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 1950s. I came of age during the civil rights era in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, which was the epicenter of the civil rights movement, the largest Jim Crow city there was. I grew up walking past my Luther King's house every day. I knew all of the movers and players and shakers in the civil rights movement before I got out of elementary school. My mother was that woman who, in the 50s, when they finally got a vaccine for polio, a vaccine for German measles, my mom was the woman that knocked on the door of all the kids in the projects and all the parents in the projects to tell them where to go and get their shot or to tell them what's safe, what's okay to do. My favorite story to my mom, my mother is that when a pap smear first came out and women were afraid to do that. And particularly black women, my mother did volunteer to be the first one to get one, I don't know, first black woman to get a pap smear. And then told all the other women about it. She volunteered for everything they thought would make us better. And that's what drove me to be that kind of person. On February 21st, 1965, civil rights activist Malcolm X is assassinated. Last Sunday at 3.21 p.m. New York time, he rose to speak to his followers in Harlem. One minute later, he was shot down by 10 bullets. 18 minutes later, he was dead. In 1966, Oakland College students Huey Newton and Bobby Seale start the Black Panther Party. This is Huey Newton. In America, uh, black people are uh, treated very much as uh, the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people. We're used, we're brutalized. The police in our community occupy uh, our uh, area, our community as a foreign troop occupies territory. And the police are there not to, uh, in our community, not to uh, promote our welfare or uh, for our security and our safety, but they're there to contain us, uh, to uh, brutalize us and murder us, uh, because they have their orders uh, to do so. And um, just as the soldiers in Vietnam have their orders to uh, destroy the Vietnamese people, the uh, police in our community couldn't possibly be there to uh, protect our property because we own no property. They uh, couldn't possibly be there to see that uh, we receive the due process of law for the simple reason that uh, the police themselves deny us the due process of law. And so it's very apparent that the police only in our community, uh, not for our security, but the security of the uh, business owners in the community, and also to see that uh, the status quo is kept intact. Panther Party members patrol their own communities as a way to protect Black citizens and as a means to oppose police brutality. The organization grows and expands beyond Oakland to other major U.S. cities, They create community social programs like the Free Breakfast Program for School-Aged Children and Free Health Clinics. 
In September 1968, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover calls the Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the nation. The Black Panther Party operated under a 10-point program. This was point one. We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our Black community. We believe that Black people will not be free until we are able to determine our destiny. Atlanta high school student Tim Hayes is an organizer for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a principal channel of the student commitment in the United States to the civil rights movement during the 1960s. Tim is also writing for the counterculture underground paper, The Great Speckled Bird. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. April 4th, 1968, civil rights activist and Atlanta neighbor of Tim Hayes, Martin Luther King Jr., is assassinated. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I pray that his family can find comfort in the memory of all he tried to do for the land he loved so well. I have just uh, conveyed the sympathy of Ms. Johnson, myself, to his widow, Mrs. King. I know that every American of goodwill joins me in mourning the death of this outstanding leader and in praying for peace and understanding throughout this land. We can achieve nothing by lawlessness and divisiveness among the American people. It's only by joining together and only by working together can we continue to move toward equality and fulfillment for all of our people. I hope that all Americans tonight will search their hearts as they ponder this most tragic incident. Tim Hayes becomes a Black Panther. The guy that recruited me in the Black Panther Party was the America's version of Nelson Mandela. His name was Elmer Pratt. We called him Geronimo. He was a, a multi-medal-winning Vietnam War vet expert in counterinsurgency. He showed us all how to do that kind of shit. Tim first met Geronimo Pratt in New Haven, Connecticut, and then a few months later says he was drafted into the Panther Party. That was December 1968, just shy of his 19th birthday. Tim Hayes is tapped by Geronimo Pratt to start the Atlanta chapter of the Black Panther Party. December 4th, 1969, Chicago police killed 21-year-old Panther Party chairman Fred Hampton in a pre-dawn raid. It wasn't long after that, in 1970, when Geronimo, now the head of the Los Angeles chapter of the Panther Party, is arrested and charged with robbery and the murder of a 27-year-old schoolteacher in Santa Monica, California. Pratt maintained he was in Oakland at the time of the murder, attending a Black Panther meeting. A prosecution witness said that Pratt had confessed to the murder, but this witness never disclosed that he was working with law enforcement. At the time, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was leading a politically motivated COINTEL program against the Black Panthers and other perceived enemies of the U.S. government. In 1972, Elmer Pratt is convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Prison for 27 years for a murder that the FBI made up. 
Pratt was able to prove just that. He didn't commit the murder. He was granted a new trial in 1997, and a month later was a free man. And then he was awarded a $4.5 million settlement for false imprisonment and civil rights violations. So a young Tim Hayes, only 18, 19 at this time, is watching Hoover's COINTEL program and seeing his friends put in prison. He takes his revolutionary activities overseas. And participated in movements in Israel and in Angola and Guinea-Bissau, uh, in Argentina. Even I went as a guest of the Japanese government as a socialist after a, a career <laughs> as a civil rights worker and a black militant. I hate that term, that's what they called us back then. I couldn't even pick cotton in Atlanta, Georgia, because everybody knew who I was. But anyway, I came to Philadelphia in 1973 because I wanted to be a normal person. I had gotten tired of confrontational politics, and I had a newborn child. I came to Philadelphia basically to be nobody. Because we had a new baby, and my wife was from northern New Jersey, in a little town, and she went and stayed there while I had my little job in Philadelphia and worked to save enough money to get us an apartment. My wife went to college in Philadelphia, and she had lots of friends in Philly, and they let me stay in their living room in an apartment on 33rd Street in Pouton Village. In that apartment building and a few other apartment buildings around, there was a guy who on trash day would come and take the trash cans out, and he would mop the hallways and stuff like that. I didn't know his last name at the time. He was named Vince. And one day, I was coming off the bus, and this guy saw me holding a record that was a Jamaican record and it had people on it with dreadlocks and he wanted to sit down and talk about that and we talked about it and I showed him the pictures and stuff and he had never seen dreadlocks before. He had sort of unruly hair but he didn't have dreadlocks. He listened intently to what you said. He asked good questions but at the time he didn't seem that bright particularly but very curious about everything and then the things I had in my house like African artifacts and stuff like that. He was very interested in those things. And I gave him a book, which he never returned. It was about Jomo Kenyatta. And I explained to him that that word meant burning spear. And my favorite reggae artist was a reggae artist named Burning Spear. He was fascinated by that. And I never got that book back. Talking and stuff went on for a few weeks. This guy was named Vince Leaphart. Vincent Lopez Leaphart, 41 years old, a veteran of the Korean War, a married man, no children, living alone in Powelton Village, working as a handyman doing odd jobs. This is March 1973. Vince was a little heavier than me. Would have been thin at the time. Lighter complexion than I am. Not what we call a high yellow moment. He wasn't that light. He was a lighter complexion than I am. Scraggly beard. Almost a goatee, but not quite because it wasn't that well kept. Not what, I, what they would say, you know, Baptist minister like charisma. More like a, why don't you tell me about this type of thing? Tim, as Vincent, is leaning forward and staring intently right at me. This is Vince's charisma. Uh, he, he asked me this one time, where did the word Africa come from? Africa is really the name of a Roman general. Who, <laughs> it's not really African word at all. But it became associated with that, with what we call Libya and, and Tunisia in that today. That was Africa to the Romans. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. And he would always ask me these questions. That came out of the blue, like, where our names come from? Well, we don't know our names. None of us know our names. They were so afraid of slaves speaking the same language. Before they even came to the plantation, they were already separated out so that you didn't have two or three that spoke the same language and stuff like that. So by the time you came to America, a lot of times they had what they call seasoning a slave. You've been in the Caribbean somewhere before, sometimes for a whole generation. So there had been a great fear from the Columbus days when they had Native Americans as slaves who spoke the same language and learned the danger of that. 
And by the time they met African-American slaves, they had that practice down. Basically, I told them what I learned when I was 13 years old, you used to go to black Muslim meetings. That's what they call the nation of Islam in the old days, the black Muslims, is that because we don't know our real name, everybody called himself X. He seemed particularly fascinated about that because he came back and asked about it again. Okay, because most guys that came from where he came from were too arrogant to admit he didn't know something. He wanted to know stuff. And I was impressed by that. He would ask you a question, he would look you right in the eye. And he'd be right on you, you know, uncomfortably close sometimes because he'd always lean in. And once he got what he wanted, he would back up. And then I noticed that a house that looked like it was abandoned before, there was vents on the porch there. His hair was longer, and these people were kind of walking around, talking and doing stuff. And the next week, there were more of them, and the next week, there were more of them. And a couple of times, one of them came in to take the trash out instead of vents and things like that. And I kind of asked him what that was about one day on the way from the bus. And he said, I got a project. I got a project. Okay. And we never talked about that again because the group got bigger and bigger. That was the beginning of what became MOVE. Living right across from what would become MOVE headquarters, Tim's windows looked right down at MOVE's front porch. We know the other days, I'm looking down at them on that porch, and I saw him doing a lot of leaning in. I know that when I see that. MOVE began with Vince going to people and bringing them in, pulling them in, and giving them a sense of self, and pulling them out of that gang life and stuff like that, and making them feel like they're somebody, you know, and that, you know, you know what your name is, but I'm going to make you Africa. Because the first time somebody met you in Africa, I said, who the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, they were talking about him. He was a natural. It's now early 1974. We didn't see Vince as much, but these form of male and female gang members would be sitting on the porch and stuff. I had to walk past it where I got off the bus every day, sometimes twice a day. You walk past and say, what the fuck are you looking at? Oh, you, what you, know, you, you know, okay. So they became very confrontative. You couldn't avoid it unless you're going to go a block out of your way to keep and confronting them, which I did sometimes. This is from the citywide underground weekly paper, The Drummer, April 2nd, 1974. The story is titled Move, Seed of Fascism. Byline, Ken Kalimnik. The majority of MOVE members are Black. One of the more vociferous members, Delbert Africa, claims to be a former Black Panther Party official, at one time in charge of security for that party's Northern Illinois chapter. One of the white members is a South Philadelphia-raised youth who had previously been through a Buddhist group and a Jesus freak trip. Two other MOVE followers are ex-members of the American Nazi Party. All members fanatically believe in an ideology that tells them it's unnecessary to think. In fact, it's downright unnatural and evil. And it just got louder and worse and worse. And on more than one occasion, I saw people being both physically and verbally abusive to Vince. And that kind of scared me. It's like he created a Frankenstein monster that he didn't really have control out of. They began to speak of John Africa in more mythical terms rather than physical real terms. And you almost never saw him because in the old days, he'd be always sitting out there on the porch, okay, and looking at what's going on in sort of his domain. And after a while, you never saw that. You almost never saw him. He became, long live John Africa. Okay, well, where the fuck is John Africa? The absence of John Africa is also mentioned in the drummer's Move Seed of Fascism story. 
John Africa, the founder of MOVE, is missing. When asked of his whereabouts and whether he is still alive, MOVE members uniformly smile or laugh or deny knowledge of the matter or refuse to answer. This is just what I saw myself, is that you saw him less and less, and the mythological John Africa, you heard about more and more and more and more. From people who started growing a sloppy version of dreadlocks who didn't even live around the MOVE house, who absorbed this defiant mythology about move, we even began to imitate it. The people that lived in Kensington and lived in North Philly, okay, we'd be going around saying, on the move, on the move, on the move. Saw this move thing as something that grabbed hold of, and if you could tell people that you were part of move, people would be afraid of you. Strange. It was strange. But Mumia was the one, the most best known person that did that. Mumia, as in Mumia Abu Jamal. People who didn't live there, they would come and visit it and do stuff there and then go out and do activities. I never wanted to know what they were doing. Not all of them lived there at that point, but there was enough of them that they were, you know, they were something, okay? As time went on, they got more and more kind of, and once in a while you see a white person there. It was always the white ones, kind of weird too, is that you started to see women walking around with no shirt on and stuff. And then you started to see children. The quality of life for us on that corner deteriorated. We would have piles of filth in the yard, and they would like, eat raw meat and ch- raw chicken and stuff, and then just throw it. According to lots of public reporting and documents from the Licensing and Inspections Department for the City of Philadelphia, MOVE was getting repeatedly cited for health code violations for their back-to-nature way of living, which didn't include trash cans. That's technology. That's technology. So they would leave it out there, and then rodents would come small ones and big ones. And eventually we started to have rats in our house. Tim remembers that neighbors start to confront Move about the rats, the roaches, and the smell. Evening Bulletin, April 29th, 1975. Headline, Neighbors Complain About Threats from Move Members. Byline, John T. Gillespie. Philadelphia Move Members say they are so passive in nature they take in stray dogs by the dozens and bury their droppings, that means poop, to nourish the earth. Ken Moberg, who lives near Move's battered and litter-strewn commune headquarters, said two Move members arrived at his home recently and, quote, harangued me, threatened to castrate me, and said they would wipe me out. To me, the meaning was unmistakable. We want to kill ideas, not people, countered Sue Lyons Africa. I'm just going to note here, they got the wrong last name. This is Sue Lavino, a.k.a. Sue Africa, who will later go by Rhea. You heard her name a lot from sources in season one. Another neighbor told this reporter that he had appeared at a hearing about Move wanting to start a dog kennel, and they were opposed to it. They said that a Move member yelled at them from a car, we're going to kill you. With a young child, Tim was home a lot, and his son's bedroom window faced the front porch of the Move house. There were children who would be encouraged to have sex. And one little boy got hit because he didn't want to do this. Weeks later, it was a little girl, 12, 11, 13-ish. By the time I've seen things so disturbing over there, you never know what you want to see next. On more than one occasion, it was always a woman who came up to me because they know I passed by there every day, who asked for help because she was afraid. It was somebody who had to go to court who got arrested with the move people. And when the court thing was over, she didn't go with them. She came with me. The other time, it was a woman who came up to me and I was afraid. I said, well, this is my phone number. And I gave her a dime. Give us a call. And uh, I'll see what I can do. And she called. 
and I took her where she could get some help. She'd been beaten by somebody there. May or may not have been the father of her child, because women that had children there, and the women already had children who came there. Unfortunately, she left the child there, and she was back a couple of days later. And that made me really sad. There was a time when a lady down the street, she's dead now. She got two or three kids out there one time. It was a situation. Not everybody that in the neighborhood that, that didn't like move were just about calling the cops. People that had a heart. And I was one of them sometimes, sometimes I wasn't. I'm the guy that called the cops when they had the gun. It is Friday, May 20th, 1977. The laundromat that wasn't near the move thing was crowded. So me and, and, and my little son, Will, we had to go to the laundromat that was right near move. And we were walking past. And uh, in the previous week, Move had gotten railroad timbers and some other stuff and built like a stockade in the front of the place. And we walked past there and he said, Daddy, is that a real gun? And I looked up and there were three Move guys that were in uh, khaki fatigue type things. One gun was a replica. I knew a replica when I see it. But the other one was a real M14. M14s were standard U.S. Army-issue weapons in the Vietnam War. Quite a few MOVE followers served in Vietnam. By the time we got down to the end of the block, several more of them came out. I saw two real thirty-eight pistols. I know those because my dad carried one when he was an MP in the Army. He gave it to me when he died. I, I got it in a drawer there. Then the women started coming out. That was the first time when I got on the phone and uh, I called the police. Friday, May 20th, 1977, is known in MOVE history as Guns on the Porch. I referenced this in the last episode, Guidelines and Guns. MOVE members wearing matching khaki coveralls, said to have been made by one of John Africa's sisters, accessorized with combat boots, berets, bats, guns, and a bullhorn. And then I had a fraternity brother at Morehouse College who had just moved to Philadelphia and gotten a job at Channel 6. And I said, wow. This would be just right for him. His name was Vernon Odom. He'd since retired. I said, Vernon, I got a story for you. And he came out and he filmed it. And he filmed it. The cops descended on the area. This is an audio recording of Move that day, given to us by a source that wishes to remain anonymous. All you goddamn cops standing around here talking about we hide behind our women and children. We want you to know that this goddamn country ain't never cared about nobody's women and kids. When they dropped that bomb on Hiroshima, they were concerned about those Japanese children. When they went over there and sat down ancestors from Africa, raping their women, raping their kids, they didn't give a fuck then. When they came over here and stole this land from the Indians, they started spitting women and children. So don't act like you hide behind that bullshit facade about being scared, caring, sympathetic to about our women and kids. You know goddamn well you don't care, motherfucker. You're using that shit as an excuse. If we were to send our women and children out, if they decided to come out on their own, you wouldn't do nothing but what the fuck you doing now. Don't talk that shit about we hide behind the women and kids, motherfucker. You better realize that MOVE, every member of MOVE is dedicated to the same thing. Men, women, and children. Our children will fight you, our women will fight you, and the men fight you. Ain't no goddamn separation. No MOVE members tried not to be photographed by local press. In the printed news stories of that day and in archive photos, you can clearly identify the MOVE members on the platform with guns. I'll just mention the Africas you are already familiar with at this point. Sue, Alberta, Delbert, Janet, Janine, Consuela, Carlos. MOVE member Chuck Africa, aka Chuck Sims, is given the activity to carry his gun 
and walk to the intersection at the corner. He's arrested with a rifle purchased by Donald Glassy, the co-founder turned informant that was the main subject of the previous episode. The rest of the MOVE members go back into MOVE headquarters and refuse to come out. There's no sign of MOVE's leader, John Africa. Just when many Powelton Village residents think the MOVE situation can't get worse, it has. They are now caught in the middle of an armed standoff between MOVE and police. And um, within hours, the police had barricades all around the neighborhood. Three blocks of their diverse, politically progressive, hippie neighborhood is now under the control of law enforcement. It got really scary. Okay, it got really scary. And for months, Move and the cops go at it verbally, night and day. You brought your motherfucking click down here and stand on every goddamn corner, 15 and 20 strong. Punk-ass motherfuckers, you better realize that Move ain't going to be intimidated by none of that bullshit. You can try to smear, you can try to defame John Africa all the fuck you want. You can say all the nasty shit you want about him. That ain't going to get no goddamn reaction because we know it ain't true. You can talk about the women and kids all the fuck you want. That ain't going to do it, but show your goddamn mentality, motherfucker, on the move. Palatin Village residents are caught between Move and Frank Rizzo, Philly cop, then police commissioner, and now second-term mayor. It's got a reputation, okay, for being confrontative, enjoying beating people up. Nothing he liked more than raiding gay clubs and beating everybody up and beating people up and stuff in black militants. Oh, yeah. Give me some of those. Philadelphia has gained an international reputation as a city with one of the toughest police departments in the world. It's a force of 7,500 men shaped over the past four years into a formidable urban army run by one man without political interference. His name is Frank Rizzo. He is a policeman's cop, often called the super cop. He holds more than 60 awards and citations and has been mentioned as a possible successor to J. Edgar Hoover. So move was just tailor-made for him because he didn't need a reason. Their existence. He'll clean this city up from filth like black militants, from filth like homosexuals, from filth like spit niggers, he should call them. Because he, put, he put them all, he called them spit niggers. And like it was one word. This move thing was just made for Frank Rizzo. It was just made for him because this is the kind of thing he ran on. Eventually, the mayor said, we're going to get rid of him. March 1978. It's been 10 months since Guns on the Porch, and Frank Rizzo is done. He orders police to tighten the blockade, shut off all power and water to move headquarters, not let in any food except for the children. Rizzo's strategy is to make life so uncomfortable that any reasonable person would surrender. Give up. Move became the most uncomfortable part of my life and it interrupted what should have been the happiest period of my life. Those early days of living in Philadelphia with my young child and my, and, and my wife and away from my former life were very, very happy for a long time. Okay. But living next to Move in the horror that it became fucked it all up. This tense and headline making situation goes on until May 9th, 1978. That's when Move and the city finally comes to an agreement that the group will vacate their headquarters in Palatine Village peacefully on August 1st, 1978. Move has three months to find another place to live and the police pull back until August 1st comes and Move won't leave. Ain't no deadline as far as the teachings of John Africa go. This is Delbert Orr Africa speaking to the crowd and the media. This is our house. We're going to always be here. We're going to never recognize no deadline set by no sadistic goon like Rizzo. Philadelphia police show up on August 2nd 
with warrants for violating the court order to vacate the premises. Occupying or residing the premises, 23-year veteran of the Philadelphia Police Department, a former Marine that served in World War II and Korea, a husband, a father, is dead. He was 53 years old. I didn't think you I want to get the fuck back in the house. Adrenaline was running. You get the hell back in the house. Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Murray Dubin was there that morning. There's an, an enormous amount of shooting going on. Seven other police and fire are shot. And now there are lots of shots because police are returning fire as well. I get away from the window for a few seconds, and the shooting stops, so I get back to the window. The MOVE members come out. Eleven MOVE adults crawl out of the flooded basement, holding eleven mostly naked children between the ages of one and nine years old. Delbert Africa comes out alone with his hands up. Delbert is beaten up right in front of us. They beat the shit out of him. Twelve adult MOVE members are taken into police custody, and the 11 children are taken into the custody of Child Protective Services. This is Inquirer reporter Murray Dubin again. There always was a bit of mystery about MOVE because the fella identified as the founder, John Africa, was not there in 78. He was not present in the House. MOVE headquarters is bulldozed that same afternoon on the order of Mayor Frank Rizzo. In the pile of rubble is MOVE's handmade sign that reads, The House That John Africa Built. Back to Tim Hayes. There was no house there anymore. We 
for the first time, could walk the streets in our neighborhood freely. John Africa, Sue, Alberta, and other MOVE members are on the run. Other MOVE members and children are in Richmond, Virginia, calling themselves Seed of Wisdom. Twelve MOVE members between the ages of 18 and 32 are charged with the murder of Officer James Ramp. The corner where MOVE once lived is now an empty lot, and Tim Hayes begins house hunting, and by 1979 leaves Powelton Village for good. It will be almost seven years until Tim sees move again, but this time it will be only on his television screen. May 13th, 1985. They dropped a bomb on a black neighborhood. It didn't matter whether move were righteous, whether they were devils, okay, whether they worship Beelzebub, or whether they were saving nuns. There is no circumstance that's a good thing or a proper thing or a non-outrageous thing to do. I will always think that that's, that was that was one of the worst crimes in American history to drop a bomb on a residential black neighborhood. That happening will mean move will forever be an issue, particularly in Philadelphia. They've been riding on this. We got bombed. We're victims. We're victims. We're victims. And people just forgot to look underneath the surface to see what the hell was going on. Move, in my opinion, started out as a cult around the charismatic person in 30 years, you know, people are going to remember about move. They got bombed. As long as you can bring that up, the people are going to see historically see a move people at the victim and they'll look over the other shit. Even your podcast stuff, all this stuff about the kids you got abused and stuff like that, it'll be a little footnote in history. As much sympathy as I have for what happened to move, I still think truth is important because there's some bad things that happen and some things that were wrong that happened that caused move to come into existence in the first place. It has to do with mental health, has to do with law enforcement, has to do with things that children, kids, and young people keep from getting into trouble. Gang war, poverty, if those things weren't a problem at all, move would have never came about. Also, America was going through a time when young people were like searching for stuff. At the time that move happened, there were other cults popping up all over the country just like that. Jim Jones, Jonestown. All this happened at the same time. Move, instead of there being a pile of, of chicken parts in the front yard, it could have been dead bodies because that's the road they were on. All those things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a lot of other things that are wrong with this country then and are still wrong with this country. And they still happen just in different ways. All the people that stormed the Capitol on January the 6th, that's a cult. And we can see how dangerous it is if we aren't vigilant. That's how Trump got elected. None of those issues are important to him. It's all about him. You can convince enough people to use their hate and use their sense of disenfranchisement and get angry and manipulate them. You can get what you want. Jim Jones, Jonestown, that's the way he was. He started out helping the Panthers out, giving free food to people. And some people came and loved that and turned it into a temple, the people's temple. John Africa saw that there was a need for people to join stuff and feel a part of something. Or it just happened by happenstance. It was a phenomenon that was happening all over the country at the time. Some of these same people who were preaching out of the back of a van now have multi-million dollar churches all over Mississippi and Texas and places like that. These prosperity ministers and shit like that. They all started that way too, at the same time. It's mental health, poverty, self-esteem, people feeling in control, perfect storm. They happen. The potential for cults and people being taken advantage of or drawn into something to make them feel a part of something is very strong. And it's been strong as long as they've been human beings. 
44 years after joining the Black Panther Party, Tim Hayes is still a civil rights and community activist. He's following through on what his parents did and what he thinks is the right thing to do. Help those who need help, whether it is safely getting guns out of the hands of teenagers, coordinating food delivery to immunocompromised seniors during COVID, or leading voter registration drives. Learning the power of participation and the power of owning your community. The same way to learn the power of saving a life. That, to me, that's what the movement is. What do you think makes the world better? What's important to you to make the world better? If you want to learn more about Tim Hayes, check out his blog, timothyhayes.net. And if you want to see additional information related to this episode, check out our social media. If you have any comments, questions, or information related to this podcast, please reach out to us via email, run at gmail.com or message us on social media. We love hearing from you, and our open-door policy applies to anyone who wants to talk, either on or off the record. This episode was reported, written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by Beth McNamara. Additional research by Robert Helms. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.